prayer changes nothing. Those were the opening words of a sermon by the late Donald Gray Barnhouse to his stunned congregation. And I suppose this morning, if some of your hearts were laid bare, and with some of the situations that you face, amens would be audible. Though we come from a very different point of reference than Barnhouse did. Philip Yancey writes about prayer and that looming question that is in front of us, does it really make any difference? He writes, I interviewed ordinary people about prayer. Typically, the results went like this. Is, is prayer important to you? Oh, yes. How often do you pray? Mm, every day. Approximately how long? Um, about five minutes, uh, maybe seven. Do you find prayer satisfying? No, not really. Do you sense the presence of God when you pray? Occasionally, but, but not often. Many I talk to experience prayer more as a burden than a pleasure. They regard it as important, even paramount, even guilty about their failure, even blaming themselves. And when I listen to public prayers in evangelical churches, I hear people telling God what to do, combined with thinly veiled hints on how others should behave. When I listen to the prayers in more liberal churches, I hear calls to action, as if prayer were something to get past so we could get on to the real work of the kingdom. I suppose if we were all to be honest this morning that we would find ourselves somewhere in all of this. Why do we struggle with prayer? Prayer for many of us carries about the same kind of enthusiasm as changing a flat tire. We try everything else, and if nothing else works, we finally pray. It's kind of like a fire escape. We, it's there, it's nice that it's there in the case of an emergency. But that isn't the kind of prayer that the Apostle Paul is talking about in Romans 15. Oh, that we as a church would become a church that understands and grasps the value of real, deep, intercessory prayer. That we would be the kind of church that our, our prayer meetings would be fuller than our Sunday morning worship. I want to welcome you this morning to uh, back to our study of Romans. Our text is going to be taken out of Romans chapter 15, verses 30 through 31. But the last thing I want to do this morning is add more guilt to that which you already carry. If anything, I want to relieve you from some of it. And to do that, I want to use uh, Acts chapter 12. I want to go again in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, And now about the time that Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. The word Herod is a proper name. It's a title. It's kind of like Caesar. And uh, the Herod that we're talking about is Herod Agrippa. Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great who lived at the time of Jesus, and he was the monster that slaughtered all those children 
uh, at the time of Jesus' birth. Herod's a man pleaser. He's, he's pumped with pride, and he's figured out how to get some more. And that is by mistreating and persecuting the church. You'll notice it says at verse 3, he saw it, pleased the Jews. He took, beheaded the brother, uh, James, the brother of John, it says in verse 3, and it pleased the Jews. Now imagine what this would be like if it, if it happened today. Imagine coming to church and all of a sudden this church would be surrounded by soldiers. Imagine them coming in, marching me and my wife, along with James, Glad and the children, perhaps Jake and his children, and Laverne and her children, marching us out of this church house. You know that we're going to be mistreated, perhaps beaten, tortured, even killed. That's exactly what Herod was like. He's killed James, and now he's arrested Peter. And the point, the, the church by this point is in the thousands. People are scared. They're hiding in dens, caves, and homes, trying to escape the wrath of Herod. All of them know what Herod is planning. It's another fake trial, another execution. Just like Jesus. Verse 5 says, And Peter was there kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. Of course. You know, that's exactly what all of you would do this morning if, if they'd have came to arrest us. The meeting would stop. There would be crying. <coughs> Prayer would begin to break out in small groups. All of a sudden, your jobs wouldn't be top priority anymore. The material things of life really wouldn't matter so much. Prayer would start and would continue throughout the day for us. Verse 12 says that many gathered at the house of Mary, the mother of John. So we have two scenes going on here in Acts 12. We have Peter in prison, and we have the church praying, brothers and sisters on their knees pleading before God. They're helpless, and that's all they can do is pray. You see, that kind of attitude is what's wrong. We are never helpless when we pray. We are never more powerful than when we are on our knees. The church is praying, trusting God, and believing. But are they? Look at verse 6. Let's take... Look at, look at Peter. And when Herod brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and the keepers be before the door kept the prison. It seems odd. Peter doesn't act like a man who's going to be, might, that is, might be killed the next day or beaten. He's not anxious. He's not worrying. By the way, he hasn't taken any Tylenol PM or any Salmonex. He's relaxed. He's sleeping. I imagine Peter leaning up against one of his guards and snoring. Remember, there are four guards, four squads of soldiers guarding Peter. 
The last time they had messed with this sect, one of them had rose from the dead, so Herod's not taking any chances. It's an impossible situation, and the church is on their knees before God asking for a miracle, and God answers. Verse 7, And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and the light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side, and and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off from his hands. The angel tells him, Get dressed, get your sandals on, quickly, follow me. Verse 9, And then he went and followed him, and wist not that it was true, which was done by the angel, but thought he had saw a vision. Peter thought he was having an amazing dream. That's the way, but this is how prayer is. Peter is the recipient of prayer. He's on the, on the receiving side of it. But this kind of thing never happens unless someone is willing to sweat it out on their knees. Verse 10, they walk past the first and second ward. That's talking about the guards. There are two groups of guards they walk past. And they came to the iron gate that leadeth into the city, and it opened to them of its own accord, and they went out and passed through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. Those kinds of things happen when angels are present. The angel leaves. Verse 11 it says, when Peter, w when Peter was come to himself, in other words, Peter wakes up and realizes this is not a dream. God has actually delivered him. The angel of the Lord has come. Now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent, for, sent his angel, has delivered me out of the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. Verse 12. When he had considered this thing, he had come to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many had gathered to pray. He comes to the house where the church is praying. And a small girl, this damsel, comes to the door named Rhoda. And before she opens it, she recognizes Peter's voice. And without opening it, she runs back into the church, tells them, Peter's here. For all of you who struggle with prayer, I want you to see one of the great moments of the early church. <laughs> she tells them that Peter's at the door, and they say, praise God, we knew prayer would work. No, they don't. <laughs> they tell Rhoda, you've lost your mind. You're nuts. The word mad has to do with a maniac. By the way, the little girl named Rhoda was the only one who believed that prayer worked in this situation. You've lost it, Rhoda, but Rhoda keeps insisting she hasn't, and Rhoda, stop it. We're, we're, we're really trying to pray here. And if that isn't enough, look what they tell Rhoda. 
Thou art mad, but she constantly affirmed that it was even so, and they said it was his angel. Do you know what they mean by that? They thought Peter had died by now. His death angel was there. Broda, may his soul rest in peace. <laughs> his, it must just be his angel. All this time, Peter was at the door. <laughs> Would somebody please open up? <laughs> he continues knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him. It says they were astonished. The reality is that's how many of us approach prayer. With little or no faith, little or no expectation, or anticipation. They had a chance to storm the throne room of heaven and touch the very hand of God. They didn't understand the amazing opportunity they had at their hand because at the throne room of God, impossibilities are changed into miracles. God changes everything. It isn't prayer what changes things. Prayer is merely the vehicle by which we get into the throne room of God. It is God who changes everything. We are never more powerful than when we are on our knees. How do you approach prayer? How soon do you pray? Do you try to manipulate everything first? And when you're finally out of options, you, you pray? Is your worry list longer than your prayer list? Well, Romans 15 can change that. The setting is Corinth. And... And uh, Tarsus, the scribe, who is writing, as Paul dictates, and the, this letter is near the end, it's coming to an end. And Paul opens his heart, and he begins to be very vulnerable. Verse 30, it says, I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord's... I beseech you, brethren. It's the same word as Romans 12, 1, and 12, 1 I urge you, I draft you, brothers and sisters... I beg you to become engaged. Paul is going to show us that there are four steps that make give our prayer meaning. The first step is this, an awareness of the need. What's Paul's need? Well, back in verse 22, he tells us, he said, for which, for which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. Paul's need is for them to pray him to Rome. Pray that he might catch a ship. Pray that the obstacles would be removed. You cannot pray if you are unaware of people's needs. And to be aware of people's needs, you must be engaged in life. The door must be open. Your phone must be on. Your shades must be open. You can't be withdrawn. You've got to be involved with, in other people's lives and involve others in your life. Stop pretending 
that you guys can do life alone. It's not pride to share personal needs with others to pray about. It's pride that keeps us from doing that. And when you tell people you're going to pray, do it. Uh, the other, the uh, last night, one of the Indi- one of the brothers from this church called us and asked us to pray, and uh, my wife took time out, and we 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 prayed for that situation. When, when someone asks you to pray, follow through with it. Don't just say yes, I'll do it to get somebody off your back. What are some of the hindrances? Hindrances could include forces of evil. It could be unsaved people. It could be events. Paul doesn't tell us. But they're all mountains. And and God is able to move mountains. He's able to take us through the mountains or take us around the mountains. Our God is not limited. God has never met a situation he didn't have an answer for. That has left him stumped and saying, well, I really don't know what to do. God's never met that kind of a situation. Secondly, there must, there must be a willingness to become personally involved. As Paul says in verse 30, I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. It's one of those few verses of the Bible that we see all three members of the Trinity. There's Jesus Christ, the second member. There's the Spirit of God, the third member. And, of course, there's God the Father. When you pray, you pray to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul uses the word strive together with me, and the art, the, it isn't a term of weakness. The term is, the Greek word is soon agdomizomai. Soon meaning with or alongside. Agdomizomai meaning agony. Agonize with me. Paul is saying, agonize alongside with me. Struggle with me. Be involved. Be engaged with what I have in front of me. Deep intercessory prayer is not distant. It's not aloof. It's not holding someone at an arm's length. It's holding someone close. Close enough that you know what they're feeling, what they're going through. Their struggles, their uncertainty, their void, the ache, and then entering into it. Intercessory prayer, someone says, is the marriage of conflict and destiny between man and man. One becomes the representative of the other, and he stands in the breach and the gap where, where we are all for one and one for all. You ask, why is this, is this really necessary? I want you to consider a moment that involves you. That moment is when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
John 17, my Bible subtitles as Jesus' intercessory prayer. And in that prayer, in verse 20, he says, Neither pray I for these alone, meaning the disciples, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. That's you and me. Luke further records, in Luke 22 it says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Part of the reason for that was you and I, our sin. Father, if it be possible, let this pass come, this cup pass from me. Do you understand that Jesus agonized for you and I? Why do we struggle? Well, we struggle to discern God's plan. We struggle to release our will to God's. We struggle to understand his plan. You see, with intercessory prayer, we enter the battle. We put ourselves in the spiritual line of fire. We push ourselves to the limit for the sake and for the safety of someone else. Yes, it's hard work, and there's nothing glamorous about it. It requires commitment, and it extracts a toll on the one who uh, is involved. But in intercessory prayer, we break the grip of the adversary. The grip that is wrapped around the victim. It could be our friend, could be the one we love, could be a pastor, could be a neighbor, a wandering youth. This is what J. Oswald Sanders writes. Satan's tactic seems to be as follows. He will first of all oppose our breaking through to the place of faith. For it, is an authoritative, for, for it is an authoritative notice to quit to our enemy. He does not so much mind carnal brambling prayers, for they do not hurt him much. That is why it is so difficult to attain to a definite faith in God for a definite object. We often have to strive and to wrestle in prayer before we attain this quiet, restful faith. And until we break through and join hands with God, we have not attained to real faith at all. However, once we attain to real faith, all the forces of hell are impotent to annul it. Real battle begins when there's the prayer of faith is offered, in, and in the teeth of gears, the need is presented, and you're willing to agonize fits into those teeth, and you trust God to break the grip. So what are some situations that you and I should, should cause us to agonize or, or to, to, to turn to intercessory prayer? Well, stubborn hearts and minds is one of those things. People who resist God should cause us to agonize. Broken families. Husband and wives living separate lives, and it could be under the same roof, or it could be in different, different uh, or separate residences. Either way, the children pay a price. Addictions, drugs, alcohol, greed, 
lust, porn, all of those things destroy lives, especially youth. Missionaries. Alan Roth advised that to have no fewer than two people praying every day for each person that we send abroad. Why? Because the darkness is great and the enemy isn't going to retreat without a battle. There's going to be a lasting impact from this congregation. There must be intercessors, prayer warriors, people who agonize on their knees for victory and for protection. Prodigal children. How important it is for all of us to learn how to agonize with parents so they don't lose heart. Paul is saying, don't, don't just toss up my name. I need more than that. I want you to strive with me. Paul gives us the third step. third step is the preciseness of specific requests found in verses 31 and 32. He says that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints and that I may come to you with joy by the will of God and, and may with you be refreshed. So there are three requests that Paul has. First of all, he wants to be delivered from those in Judea. Second, that my service or that the offering he's collected would be accepted by those in Jerusalem. And thirdly, that he would be able to come to Rome and to be refreshed by the church at Rome. Notice with me that the Apostle Paul prays for both believers and unbelievers. He prays that he might be rescued from the unbelievers. He's praying for his life. You know, it, it's, it's no different back then than it is today. Uh, today, in many parts of the world, it is considered honorable, even exemplary, for someone to kill a Christian. In Paul's day, Paul, many of those individuals had hunted Christians with Paul. And now they hunted Paul. You see, it's why as a church, it's important, it's expedient, it's absolutely essential that for those who go out from this church, that we provide them an umbrella of protection of prayer. In foreign countries, we pray that their lives will be spared if they go to serve. Today, that there are more and more countries in which people are becoming hostile to the gospel. Next, Paul prays for the believers at, Jer at Jerusalem. Why would Paul pray that the church at Jerusalem would receive the gift? Well, first of all, the Apostle Paul had been to many churches, uh, the church of Berea, Ephesus. He would, and as he went through these Gentile churches, he collected an offering for the church at Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem was in dire straits. They were undergoing severe persecution. And they had desperate needs. 
But the church of Jerusalem was made up of primarily Jewish believers. And Paul was afraid that by collecting this offering from Gentile churches, they knew Paul's stand, his seemingly disregard to the Jewish laws. And Paul was afraid they'd, they'd make a statement by refusing the offering that had come from Gentile churches. And that would not only, I mean, and it would cause a big division in the churches. Because the, the Gentile churches would then in turn be equally offended. So Paul prayed that the, the saints of Jerusalem would graciously accept the gift. There's the fourth step in, in, in meaningful prayer. That is resting in God's will. Now may the God of peace be with you. Amen. That leathery, bent, wiry old apostle, he had traipsed over much of Europe. He had faced incredible dangers, demands, and responsibilities. The kind of things that would cripple many of us. And there was only one way he could have gotten through it. And that was to trust God and depend upon the peace that he gave. You ever wonder how, how God answered Paul's three requests? Let me tell you. God said no to Paul's first request. He was arrested by his enemies, by the unbelievers, and put in shackles. The second request is uncertain. We're not told. Luke doesn't tell us whether the church at Jerusalem accepted the offering, but the chances are pretty good that they did. To his third request about making it to Rome, the answer was yes. But it wasn't in the way that Paul would have liked to have happened. He went to Rome in chains. He was in, under house arrest for two years before he was beheaded. First Timothy 2. I exhort you therefore that first of all supplications and prayers and intercessions and the giving of thanks be made for all men. For kings and for all that are in authority that we may lead a quiet peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. There are three things I want you to remember when you pray. First of all, prayer needs to be the top priority of your life. Pray before everything. Pray before meeting your doctor. Pray before a job interview. Pray before meeting with a client. Pray before, pray before meeting with pastors. Pray before starting your day as a stay-at-home mom. Pray before everything. Make prayer your top priority. You see, when we pray, we surrender our will to a greater one. Lord, this is your day, your meeting, your test, your business, your church. This is your struggle. We surrender our will to a greater. My life is yours. 
Secondly, prayer is essential. Paul says, I exhort you, I urge you, I plead with you. Prayer is so important. Do it first. Don't wait till you try everything else and then pray. Pray first. Thirdly, prayer opens the door to rest and tranquility in our lives. Notice what Paul says. That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. I want to close with a piece that I think it's worthwhile for you to hear. It just caused me to stop and to pause as I I came across this piece. And I want to close with it. Satan has a plan against the saints of the Most High. The plan is simply... To wear them out. What is meant by this phrase, wear them out? It has in it the idea of reducing a little this minute and reducing further further a little the next minute. Thus, the wearing out is almost imperceptible. A little today, a little tomorrow. Nevertheless, it is a reducing. The wearing down is scarcely an activity of which one is conscious. And yet the end result is there's just nothing left. Nothing left. He will take your prayer life little by little and cause you to trust God less and less. Yourself more and more, a little at a time. He will make you feel somewhat cleverer than before. Step by step, you are led to rely more and more on your own gifts. Step by step, your heart is enticed away from the Lord. Now, where Satan did strike the children of God with force at one time, they would know exactly how to resist the enemy, but but since they would immediately recognize his work, he uses the method of gradualism. The method of gradualism to wear down the children of God. Many of you today are victims of gradualism. You are just worn out. Too tired to resist, you compromise. And the enemy gets his way. Let's pray. Or let's bow.